With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by the Netflix film The Meyerowitz Stories New and Selected from Noah Baumbach. Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, and Dustin Hoffman star in this story of an estranged family reunion. Grudges and rivalries abound as the three adult siblings converge in New York to contend with their prickly artist father and his fading legacy. The Meyerowitz Stories New and Selected is now in select theaters and on Netflix. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic in New York, joined as always by our editor-at-large, Ann Thompson, out in L.A. And Ann, last week we spent the bulk of the episode talking about all these terrible Harvey Weinstein stories, and unfortunately, in many ways, this has continued to consume the news cycle, not only in our little indie space but for the entire world it's been just a, a top story a real he's on the cover of time on the My cover God. of time magazine not how he would want to be remembered i would like to suggest to you fired from his publication pushed out by the board and uh, publication that's us publication. no no from his company <laughs> pushed out for, you know company. i'm thinking about publications though because i'm thinking about like every publication has had to weigh in on this every person of note has had to weigh in on this. The Obama's issued a statement. Because his same... daughter was an intern yeah, there. Exactly. The Democrats I mean, have been... The, one they're giving him this... his money back. I mean, right. It's, uh... Yeah, exactly. USC gave him his money back. One of the things that's disturbing about this, too, to think, think about is that he is going to be used by the Trump administration, by the Republicans in general, uh, to tar the uh, Democrats and Hollywood. He will become the the horrible example of our, you know, not that Trump is any better. Well, they did it. I mean, we talked about this last year because uh, that's what happened with, with Anthony Weiner, obviously. And Anthony Weiner was this cartoonish sex addict in the media's image of him who was also used to kind of, by, by virtue of his association through marriage with the uh, Clinton campaign, was used as a, as, as a means of targeting them. But the thing about Harvey is that he was sort of using his association with not just DMC, but women's rights or whatever other kinds of liberal causes he was giving money to as, as a veil of sorts to, to obscure these other aspects of his behavior. So, yeah, I think what's happened over the past week, which is just you know sickening and disturbing, and I know I'm not alone, whether it's because I'm a woman or, or because every single woman has had some episode in her life or, you know, just the awareness that you have of how vulnerable young actresses really are, you know, and, and knowing that agencies, talent agencies knew about, about the, the, the behavior that their clients were, were, uh, maybe going to be subject to and would warn them and would, and would try to protect them. I mean, uh, and all the behavior that was just so toxic and horrible across the board. And so you can see how much loathing and 
and horror everyone is feeling, but they're, and, and everyone's piling on him, obviously, but the scale of it, the scale of it. And, you know, just Gwyneth Paltrow, Hollywood royalty, goddaughter to, to Steven Spielberg, um, you know, the, the, the extraordinary, uh, 17 year old Kate Beckinsale. Right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there was a TMZ caught Harvey outside of some, uh, his daughter's house in LA or wherever he was. And he said some, some nonsense about second chances. It's more like 300th chance or something. I mean, the scale of this thing just keeps getting His bigger. nine lives have been used yeah, up. Yeah, they were used up a long he time. He doesn't have... Now, everyone is, is sort of in unanimous agreement here that in this particular case, he's gone so far over any acceptable line. And, and there is no acceptable line. You know, there is none. But, but he's gone so far over it. He's such a monster. That's the word people are using. That there is no coming back. I I said he was done, and he is done. Well, but the but, other thing you but, have to think about is so a lot of the questions that I've been seeing all across the board. Why didn't the media act on this before? How was this such an open secret? You know, everybody's accountable. Of course, we are all. I mean, it's important to acknowledge it. We are all complicit to some degree in in terms of not taking the right action or not realizing when action needed to be taken. Well, it takes an organization with resources to do it. And the thing that's disturbing today is the story about NBC not backing up Ronan Farrow. They gave him a certain amount of money to um, investigate. And then at a certain point, they pulled the plug. They said, go somewhere else. Why did they do that? On the other hand, he went to The New Yorker. The New Yorker took him on. and And The New Yorker is a very reputable news organization. So they, he had plenty of good stuff or they wouldn't have taken it on. And then you go, you know, the New York times finally was able to get people to go on the record. And I will maintain that the only reason that these women were able to finally go on the record was that his power had diminished. Yeah, I think that that point has been made all across the board in the past week. And it's, it's pretty clear that, that people feel almost like you know, he, he became less threatening when he had less in the game. And now he really had nothing in the game. Well, he had no so, Oscar contenders No Oscar year. contenders. He had, the you know, very few projects not... going forward of any note. I mean, we, you will note the two people who have not spoken up include Quentin Tarantino. We do not know what's going to happen with him. Hollywood must be chasing him. That is what's going on. Well, How is he going a, to draw? He's worth a great deal. A low, He's a valuable... Profile. Entity. I mean, and that's Mike Moore is the other one. I mean, yeah, Michael yeah, Moore, Mike hasn't Moore has spoken up anything. because he has a project there. Yeah, there's some kind of Fahrenheit 9 11 sequel. And frankly, both of those projects at this point are obviously better off without the shadow of, wine, of, of Harvey. But that's of. what's going on across Hollywood, every agency. You know that Ari Emanuel is trying to figure out how to, how to save his I'll client. I'll talk Michael. about this for a second, though, because I've been hearing this from a lot of people, mostly off the record, on the background. That's what it is, who either worked with Harvey or were experiencing the the fruits of Miramax's labor in the 90s, who feel that it is still important to recognize a certain underlying brilliance in getting certain films out into the marketplace, independent films that were produced uh, completely outside of the studio system, that were from really exciting new voices, and the essential contradiction that a lot of people are wrestling with is, you know, can we actually rewrite history now that this this person's reputation has been completely 
you know, dismantled by virtue of what we now know are, is the complete All reality. Right. Of you can thing. look at that several different ways. On the one hand, he got plenty of glory. He got plenty of accolades. He got plenty of Oscars. He got plenty of joy out of all that. And and now we're dealing with the ugly underside that was hidden uh, beneath all of that uh, luster. Uh, it, I think if you look at someone like, um, I mean, Hollywood and the Academy especially, and the Academy is going to weigh in and they're going to have a Saturday session of the Board of Governors to decide what to do about Harvey because historically they've always separated artists from from their acts, they, they they look at the art, look at the art separately. So if you look at Ezra Pound or someone or Mahler or Leni Riefenstahl or somebody like that, or an Wagner. artist, you but, say you say look at the work and and, and judge the person but those, separately. All, all of those questions came up in very different climates than the one we exist in now. And Harvey has it'll take time. I, I did. I did I mention to our editor Dana Dana Harris that we should consider doing um, some kind of, you know, historical uh, appreciation of what it is that that Harvey and uh, Bob and and Weinstein and Miramax brought into, you know, how did they change Hollywood? You know, well, I want to get into this for a second because I think it's it's not just Hollywood; it's also the, the independent film business, as it were, that kind of rose in the '90s. In, in many ways can be explained as sort of the snowball effect as a result of the success of the Weinstein's, right? You have that timeline of, of the sex lives and videotapes in 1989, and then you have people like Bingham Ray creating October films, and the argument could be made that that was sort of in response to or inspired by the fact I that I would the hesitate to do that. I would but hesitate I, to I'm, give them I'm, I'm telling you that what people are credit. saying. What I've been hearing what people say. they were able to do, and I chronicled this from the beginning. I was there. I, I, you know, John Pearson existed separate from the Weinsteins. You know, Working Girl was a project that he worked on that they acquired and that they took to $1.7 million box office. And and no, he worked with them, obviously. Right. So there's an overlap and, and so there. he knows the Weinsteins as well as, as anyone. But John Pearson and those projects would have existed without the Weinsteins. October Films and Bingham Ray would have existed without the Weinsteins. I mean, what that's they the did essential divide. was that's to argument. bring a marketing perspective and a scale to it. That was the genius of Harvey. It had to do with scale. I it had the, to do I guess the question with, is, with taking it to another level and showing other people how far it could go. I guess, but I guess the question there is, it, how, how can we say, I mean, that hypothetical of saying October Films, Bingham Ray, or for that matter, Sony Pictures Classics and the way in which the 90s was, was a big deal for them. Obviously, or, Sony Pictures Classics, their primary rival, if you look at it a certain way, they have survived. Harvey has not. Right, Harvey I, but, finally brought himself down. But in the 90s, who was, the, who was making a brand stand out? I mean, the contrast I would draw is nowadays my college students at NYU, they know one distribution company. They're familiar with A24. And I'm not saying that A24 is the new Miramax in such direct terms, but there were probably costumes in a way it is. In a way, it's in a way it is because I'll tell you why. The 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 point about Weinstein Co. at this stage, one of the reasons why all of this has finally come out, is because they're in decline. They're not matching um, the market. They are not in sync. They are not in touch 
with the market. They have lost it. And so the question is, who has found it? Who is in, in ahead of it? Who is ahead of the curve? And that is A24. Right. Although, so A24 as we it? pointed out when we did that story on Fox Searchlight, they are not at any remote level reaching the kind of scale of success that either Fox Searchlight or Weinstein. No, but, they, but, but they're, they're getting people moment. excited about movies in a certain kind of way. And I guess one thing you could extrapolate from that is that's also having a, a ripple effect on the market. It's, ha it's in encouraging people to be more aggressive. It's showing that certain kinds of movies that you thought weren't going to be successful actually can be successful as Oscar movies and at the box office. And that's something that maybe Miramax kind of did in the sense Let's that... Let's talk about this in another way, too, which is that the, well, what we're also seeing is the end of an era of, of a certain kind of independent uh, scale and success that is never going to be replaced. So A24 is as successful as anybody right now, along with Fox Searchlight and Sony Pictures Classics. And, you know, but they are... But, and focus, I guess. And they are also, the, and every other <laughs> distributor is going to come after us for not being mentioned. But let's just say they are doing very well. We like but Sony Classics. We like Bleecker Street. It's not ever going to be the same. But it's, it, that it, scale it, is gone. No, but I, I like all these different kinds of I like Fox Search. I, I like the passion behind a lot of these companies. But it's, it's also a question of, you know, the, the curatorial sensibilities that end up being a big part of how these movies are selected and pushed out into the world. And so that really comes back to this question of the, the Miramax legacy. I mean, I wrote something this week that kind of raised the question of, should we give Harvey and company so much credit for American 90s independent cinema? If you look at the new queer cinema, for example, they didn't do that. They didn't do Slacker. You know, there's, there's a, they didn't do Wes Anderson or Paul Thomas Anderson's first film. So if we take them out of the equation, we still have a pretty impressive run of amazing American independent films. Conversely, they got Pulp Fiction out there. They got The Crying Game out there. And so there is Quentin a Tarantino is a huge, huge part of their, of their success. But, but I have to... The thing that I keep thinking about with, with them, and I know that Tom Brueggemann is working on something, um, you know, where he's going to really examine uh, some of the numbers. I mean, one of the things that, that I wonder is I, I have a sense when they were Miramax and they um, sold to Disney uh, for $79 million, whatever the figure was, um, the sense on the, the word on the street at the time, I mean, nobody ever knew exactly what the numbers were, was that they were actually losing money, that they really weren't doing that well because they had been doing a lot of their own productions, things like the Lemon Sisters and stuff like that. So they got bailed out in some ways by, by being bought by Disney. And then they had a very, very successful run at Disney, but they had a deal there that allowed them to to take a bonus off of everything that they succeeded with. And they kept pushing back all of these movies to the, to the end. And in the end, when they left that last year, basically wiped out most of their profits from the previous years because all the bad movies got dumped out in one fell swoop at the end. And then they went on to their new thing, raised them a billion dollars or so and ended up being, um, 
overextending themselves, buying all these companies, having to sell their library at a certain point, and then having to get it back. And, and all of this, it was like a shell game. It was like they kept moving their assets around. And finally, you know, at the end of the day, I would like to know, I would really like to know if you take all the movies they shelved, all the movies that they threw away, all, all the, you, know, you look, you see the successful ones that they went for the Oscars with, that they, that they took out of that whole, they used to release like 30 movies a year. And now it's much, much less, but that money they made from the few versus all the money they lost how many filmmakers out there are going to step forward now and complain about what they were, how they were treated? It's it's very interesting to I me. Think, I'd yeah, like the, to know that, the reality. That's another aspect of the reckoning is sort of the just the the historical dimension of it, and just sort of digging things up. It's not just a culture of fear surrounding all of this awful treatment of women that from by this sexual predator, but also just the fact that now that people are realizing they can speak out about them, what else are they going to say? You know, we ran a very tasteful comment by Ryan Coogler the other day who was just sort of making it clear that he is always making sure that there are prominent women uh, roles in, on his sets and, and, and so forth. And, and that sort of thing is all really valuable for us as a culture to be talking about. But it's also really fascinating what happens to people who feel like they're somehow, I don't know, restricted by uh, the nature of their business dealings with somebody for other kinds of reasons when suddenly they're not restricted. So, you know, the, the story is going to keep evolving, especially with, with Harvey, who knows, on the run in rehab. We can't really tell. So this may be just well, the Well, those chapter. speculations, I mean, you mentioned this altercation with his, his daughter, you know, in New York um, that was on TMZ. And, and, you know, of course, the New York tabloids are tracking him. Did he get on a plane to Europe? Apparently he got on a plane to Arizona. Is he in rehab? Is he, you know, people are imagining that, you know, if I were Harvey, I, I, I would, I would contact Elon Musk and get on the first plane to another planet. Yeah. Well, we'll see how that plays if, out. If he doesn't end up in jail at this point, I mean, the New York police department is, yeah. is opening up a case against many him. different many different possibilities on that front i get so exhausted talking about this let's just talk about some movies for a little bit hey like, I, uh, I, I you know what i did last night i hate to tell you i watched the yankees oh, and i was deliriously happy deliriously the happy yankees, you know they're still in the game they can still i am stuff. delighted and thrilled <laughs> some well Talk about money and power, you know, the, that team, it's sort of shocking when they aren't doing well. But uh, There are times when we love men, and we love them when they are <laughs> baseball players in their prime. Yeah. Then they're just tools anyway. So, <laughs> so last time we spoke about um, Blade Runner, it was very interesting because that movie, it came out pretty well, I think, but... Uh, it well, it was reviewed work. exuberantly uh, by by the critics, but and then it opened very poorly. Yeah. You know what's interesting about that is that I actually um, didn't think it was going to be commercially successful initially when I saw it. I, I, I actually thought it was sort of an art film, an expensive art film, and I, I was surprised when it was expected to open at $40 million plus, and, and then it, it opened at more like 31 So every, everybody's now saying because it's so expensive, like, 
like 185 million that it can't possibly make its money back. But um, I, I think it's one of those movies that cinephiles have to see. It's wonderful. Well, Michael Nordine wrote a great story for us where he was basically pointing out that uh, the original film was a cult film. It was not successful, and it was fine with time. And this film may, in fact, very naturally fall into that box. It's sort of surprising that they made it in the first place because when you think about it, the nostalgia factor for this movie is for an older audience. That's not the most essential audience to make this a success. The younger audience didn't have that visibility, and they didn't make it appeal to that audience, and apparently they didn't make it appeal to women either, which is not surprising because there's not a lot of... I mean, there are women in the movie, but no, it's not there's some central, great right? women in the movie. There are like four great young um, actresses I playing love strong to see characters. That, yeah, and then there's Robin Wright. I actually Robin think Wright what's would, interesting they about didn't, they didn't play her up nearly enough. No, like, she's they actually really have. cool in this movie. She's very. <laughs> It's a supporting role. Yeah. But the thing that strikes me about it is that it was monstrously mismarketed. And it, it's hard to say, is it Alcon's fault for over-controlling? Is it Villeneuve's fault for over-controlling? Did Warner Brothers mishandle it? What's sort thing. of interesting is that, mis is that Warner's was simply re releasing the movie because they had... Um, remake rights on it, sequel rights on it. So first, right. so they they, but the real money was was extended on the part of Sony, and and Alcon. So it's all it's all going, you know, kind of a wash in terms of who's really responsible for this, and that may be part of the problem. I'm gonna go see. I I want to see the movie again. My wife hasn't seen it. Wants to see it. So we might go. I'm sort of curious to go see it, say this weekend or in the next couple of days, and just see how many people in New York, which where things tend to do better than the rest of the country if people are still even showing up for it, because I don't feel like it's still in the conversation, really. I mean, people love reading about it, kind of like they liked reading about Mother, but they don't necessarily feel like they need to go see it. It didn't become an event movie the way it No, to. Mother, well, Mother was a complete disaster. This is not on It's a not on that it's, level, no. It's not on... Well, mean, that, no, that would be really not. bad if it was, no. but... This is, but they're they're equivalent in a way. They're what they are are really really smart art films. I mean, Martin mm -hmm. Scorsese came out defending uh, Darren Aronofsky, and and so the question is who who's responsible for spending so much money on them? But you know what? I loved I loved this movie, and it and, and for me, I, it it is it is a gorgeous. So the question I talked I got to sit down with Villeneuve and and talk to him about it, and I'm sitting there smiling like a, a complete, you know, Fan geek, <laughs> because it was so much fun to talk to him as he, how did you do, you know, how did you do that shot? How did you come up with the idea of the giant figures in Las Vegas? What about the red dust? What about the, the scene with the two actresses together making love to Ryan Gosling? This was fun for me. And if, you know, if you enjoy it, read it. Yeah. No, it's 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 a it's a fun movie to read about, especially because everybody has their own way into this movie, and they're, he's really good at talking about it. Uh, I thought that Gosling did a fine job hosting SNL. There was there was there's been some highlights to the promotions of this movie. The the video that went viral of Gosling with Harrison and, and Ford, Harrison Ford <laughs> drunkenly laughing. With the I drunken mean, London he's happy. woman was hysterical. I guess the question though is. The I mean, British press did well with them. The other one that was fun was Graham Norton, yeah. where they're talking about the punching and everything. Yeah, yeah. no, they did, they got out there, and, they, and they these were are charismatic people. I would have loved to see Harrison Ford in a supporting actor slot, 
but that may not yeah, happen now. I don't one. know. The crafts will still happen. All right, let's compare Blade Runner to Wonderstruck for a moment. You may think I'm crazy, but <laughs> I just like that sentence. <laughs> I know. Wonderstruck is another example of a movie that is, seems to satisfy people more as, as a movie to look at. And I'm one of those people that sometimes is guilty of being a bit of a style Nazi when I, when I see movies. In other words, I have so much awareness of, of how they're made and how they're, you know, the VFX or the production design or the cinematography or the edit. I'm very aware of all those things. And I get a kick out of it when something's done incredibly well. And I got a kick out of Wonderstruck for that reason. And I did with Blade Runner too. The question is whether the audience, the mainstream audience goes there. And that is going to be a question for Wonderstruck going forward as well. Yeah. So speaking of, of, of open questions, we still have, as we're recording, one movie from the New York Film Festival that neither of us have seen and we can't talk about. And by the time this podcast is out there, we will be able to, so we'll get to it next week. That's Woody Wonder Allen's Wonder Wheel. Wheel. So that's the, the closing night film at New York Film Festival. It's the last kind of, it's the last Amazon slot of the three big slots it had at the festival this year. It seems pretty good. I mean, hard to tell if Kate Winslet's going get to get the boost that they're looking for. They're certainly The word on the street her. is that she's good in it from people that have seen the movie before us. <laughs> and, that, and, and that the movie is, you know, solid Woody, nothing, nothing you haven't seen before, but that's to be expected, obviously. There are, there are questions about, you know, does anybody really want to see a Woody Allen movie, period, these days? But I guess if it's good enough and Amazon handles the marketing right and they really make it around, build it around Kate Winslet, then... They have as good a shot as anybody's had with a Woody Allen movie when it turns out pretty good, which is, you know, almost like a 50-50 proposition on some level. I mean, usually when they're pretty good, they do they do fine, but it's a question well, of how fine. Yeah, Midnight in Paris was his last really big breakout. That was huge, yeah. And I, and I really, you know, that's one of my favorite of his recent recent films, but it's been a while since he made a great film. So I took a break from New York Film Festival last week, and I went up to the Hamptons, which was super fun, kind of like fantasy role-playing, be a Hampton snob for the weekend instead of being a New York cinephile for the weekend. And um, the nice thing about that film festival is that it's got a lot of Academy voters, there's a lot of Academy type of activity there, and you do get a sense of how that kind of, you know, older, well-heeled portion of the voting block and that that kind of sensibility is responding to different kinds of movies. And I have How to did tell it play? You, How, what played well there? I'll tell you uh, it, what was interesting. So the two movies that I think got a really strong response. One was Get Out, which I had the, the, the great privilege of moderating this hour-long conversation about. Uh, it was a, sort of I, I chose a bunch of clips from the movie that I think really illustrate the strongest filmmaking elements. And we had... Stars Daniel you Kaluuya, Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele, and stars Jan Daniel Kaluuya, Allison Williams, and also the two producers Jason Blum and uh, Sean McKittrick from QC Entertainment were all there. So I brought them out kind of in piecemeal. First Jordan and the producers to talk about pitching the movie, then the actors to talk about the performance elements, and uh, we had clips that showcased all of those different things. And this was a packed house, and it played really well. I saw a lot of awards people there. I saw Academy members there. I saw the head of the New York Academy brand, Patrick Harrison, there. And you really got a sense that everybody everybody likes this movie. And the fact that it's this genre film that premiered at Sundance and was the first uh, you know 
film with a black director to cross the $100 million mark. There's so many things about it that were a big deal earlier this year that people still remember. So I have to say. But that's what a festival like this is deal. important for. I mean, that's yeah. why, that's the usefulness. That's what these, that's what it. Universal has to do is to bring it back into everyone's consciousness. And I have to say, talking to people here in LA, around town, um, the Big Sick is very popular and Get Out is very popular. And both the, of them. The, the other film, though, that, that, is, that played in New York Film Festival and then went to the Hamptons with cast in both places that, that got a really strong reaction was Call Me By Your Name, which was mm-hmm. a movie that I thought, I mean, I, I got the sense that the, Ham, the, the Sundance reaction early on you know, set set unrealistic expectations for how this movie would be received in the quote unquote real world. But people are really embracing this thing. I think Army Hammer is a major movie star and people like seeing him in this kind of an auteur driven project. It's got a hot, sexy, you know, gay love story kind of thing that helps sell it to people, but then it's also very beautiful and tender and not depressing. It's not broke back mountain. It's it's a very it's also uh, not threatening. Yeah. It's also set in this very romantic young man in an almost Greek kind of uh, setting. It's it's not it's not about either of them identifying as gay. It's it's about a love story. Exactly, and 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 there's no villain or anything like that either. I mean, we talked about this. There was a panel on the the variety's ten actors to watch, and you know, Timothy Chalamet was saying, you know, it was just sort of refreshing to be in a movie where you didn't have a bad guy for once. You know, there wasn't. I mean, there's. There's drama, there's conflict, but it doesn't have that, there's nothing forced about it. And so I just thought that was kind of notable, the idea that Get Out and Call Me By Your Name, and even something like The Big Sick, Camille Nanjiani was also up there on the Actress to Watch panel. These are are not traditional award season movies. I mean, I suppose Call Me By Your Name to some degree, but also... I would say that is actually quite traditional. The scope of these topics, I mean, they're all... They're all provocative in their own kinds of ways. You know, well, they're they're both, that two of them out. are dealing with race, and one and of them is dealing out. with sexuality. They're they're not they're not kids movies. They're not historical dramas. I mean, Darkest Hour was at Hamptons. I think people liked it okay, but in a very different kind. No, of No, that's so. playing very well. Darkest Hour is playing very well, and it's going to do very well with the Academy. By the way. Another movie that's doing very well at the box office with the older audience that you made reference to earlier is Victoria and Abdul, which, you know, you could easily dismiss in some way as some kind of middle of the road uh, period uh, Victorian, literally Victorian drama. But in fact, it's doing really well and people like it. And I think Academy members like it, too. So Judy Dench should not be be counted out. That's a rare uh, sort of uh, a beat uh, box office note right now. Um, you know, People like that as a, as a point of contrast. Yeah. I guess the yeah. one question we have to wrestle with is, you know, with all these different kinds of movies, it's really hard to imagine exactly which of them, at least at this point, can rise to the top and be that popular favorite. Somebody said to me when I was at the Hamptons, we had this theory that, you know, the get outs and call me by your names and big six of the race are going to cannibalize a bunch of votes and then you have something like Dunkirk kind of like rise to the top and be the I think that's choice. already the, the scenario. So I mean, that's I would a, say to you that everybody recognizes that Dunkirk is the one to beat right that's, now. That's a big one. And Blade Runner weird. probably took a bit of a hit. Yeah. Um, but I still think that the crafts will recognize, uh, you know, Deacons and Gassner and, and, uh, a lot of the crafts people there. So it, it's not, and, and even Villeneuve, I mean, it's, it's sort of a, I think Blade Runner and Dunkirk are both a little bit like, um, 
um, Fury Road or or Life of Pi. I mean, those are movies that that the, will have an enormous number of of craft nominations. Uh, and the question is whether actors get in there, and and that could maybe not happen. So next week, I guess we'll finally get a chance to wrap up the New York Film Festival by talking about Wonder Wheel. We'll creep towards a few more possibilities in terms of changes to the awards race and uh, how other new releases are doing at the box office and and exactly how that's informing things. We can talk a little bit about some of the documentaries that are out there, some more award season announcements that are getting out there, and I guess at some point we'll probably have to update people on Harvey Weinstein, but we'll see how that all plays out. Curious to see if it dies down or continues at a dull roar. Yeah, one way or another, it'll still be in the cycle. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye, Eric. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.